Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. You're going to bear with me today. I am sick, have been sick. I know it's not COVID, but I don't know what it is. So I'm preaching a weakness today, but that's okay because God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amen? Amen. Amen. You're such an obedient congregation. Thank you. You all know the story of the Trojan horse, right? For 10 years, the Greeks laid siege to Troy but couldn't get into the city. So legend has it that Odysseus came up with the plan. He got the Greeks to make a giant wooden horse, a huge wooden horse in which they hid some of their best warriors. Then the Greeks pretended to sail away uh, and the, the Trojans came out and celebrated and received the horse as kind of a trophy, a victory trophy, brought the horse back into their city. And then when they slept that night, the Greeks or, um, crept out of the horse, opened the city gates, the rest of the army secretly came back and made their way in and finally took Troy. So that's the story of the Trojan horse. And through history, it has come to represent any act of deception intended to undermine something from within. A Trojan horse. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning about in our passage. We're studying through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at his warning against false prophets. That was part one, where we defined what a false prophet is. We talked about how dangerous and deceptive they are, hence they are a Trojan horse, and how they lead others to distraction. This week, we're looking at the same passage again, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, and this is part two. Today, we want to look at how Jesus equips us to recognize these false prophets. Now, if they are deceptive, then they can be hard to spot. But Jesus wants to equip us on how to recognize them. So, if you're taking notes, the title of my sermon today is Recognizing False Prophets. Please follow along now as I read Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. May the Lord now bless the preaching and the believing of his word. Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised when false prophets show up at the door. He doesn't want us to be surprised when they show up, but neither does he want us to be surprised when they show up smiling, playing nice, making us feel good. Jesus says they will come in sheep's clothing. They're going to hide their true nature. This means that false prophets don't show up smelling like sulfur. They don't smell or look like they're from hell. 
they do not dedicate their book to Satan. No, they're going to show up looking like and sounding like genuine Christians. They're going to look homegrown, organic, 100% all natural, Jesus-like on the outside. And yet Jesus says we can recognize them. He assures us we can look at or recognize them. In fact, look at the word with me, recognize, that bookends both verse 16 and verse 20 in our passage. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. And again, verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is assuring us we can recognize a false prophet. Like root, like fruit, as the old saying goes. Just like a tree is judged by its fruit, so a false prophet can be judged by his. But what kind of fruit are we looking for? What kind of fruit are we looking for? I'm gonna give you four kinds of fruit that you can look for, and we're gonna blaze through the first three so that we can spend most of our time on the fourth. So, four kinds of fruit. The first is examine their conduct. Examine their conduct. When you study what fruit is in the Bible, a clear connection is made to a person's conduct. For example, Luke 3, verse 8, John the Baptist tells the people listening to him, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. repentance. That's right. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, all right, you say you've repented. You say you've committed yourself to God. Then show me the fruit. And so they turn around and they ask him, what shall we do then? In other words, what's the fruit you're looking for, John? What kind of fruit? And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, he's saying, it's about how you live your life, guys. It's about your conduct. It's about what you do. And Jesus teaches the same thing in John 15. You can't get righteous conduct from a rotten tree. So last week, we looked at 2 Peter 2, an important passage on false prophets. And in it, the apostle said that false prophets are blots and blemishes, blots and blemishes on your love feast. Or more uh, graphically translated, they are stains and scabs on your love feast. False prophets are stains and scabs. Why are they stains and scabs, Peter? Well, he says, because let me tell you a few things about them. One... He says, some have eyes full of adultery. That's their conduct. They go around lusting. They're sleeping around. Peter says they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They have a mistress or two mistresses or three or four or five on the side. Know any so-called preachers who've been found out have eyes full of adultery. You will know them by their fruit. In the same passage, Peter also says, okay, another thing about false prophets is they have hearts trained in greed. So they're experts in greed. They are lovers of money. The early church called them Christemporos, which means Christ merchants. Christ merchants, they trade in Christ. They sell Christ for personal gain. They use Christ to pad their pockets, to build their empires, to buy them nice cars and presidential suites at hotels and huge houses and private jets. And I'm already starting to preach against the false prosperity gospels. But we'll get more to them in a minute. 
Peter says, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. So to recognize a false prophet, you examine the fruit of his conduct. Is it in line with godliness? Is it Christ-like? Then a second fruit we could look for is their character. We examine their character. In Galatians 5, we see fruit is not just a person's conduct, but it's his character. The fruit of the Spirit, as Seth already said from Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In Ephesians 5, it's called the fruit of light. In Philippians 1, it's called the fruit of righteousness. So we have to examine their character too, not just their actions, but their attitudes. <coughs> Excuse me. So take the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. Those were the false prophets then. They were the religious leaders. From the outside, they looked pretty good. Devout religious people. But Jesus said, actually, they're whitewashed tombs. Right? So on the outside, they look squeaky clean. They look washed white. But inwardly, they're rotten. They're dead. The fruit of their character is ungodliness. So what's the test? How do you test their character? Well, Jesus has already given us the test. It's the Beatitudes, right? Are they poor in spirit? Do they mourn for their sin? Are they meek? Are they merciful? And so on. We have to examine their character, but just a note on this one, a bit of a warning. Uh, we live in a trigger-happy culture. People are quick to the judge. Right, quick to pull the trigger. People judge character and judge motives like this. Character is best judged by people close to us. The truth is, the further you are from someone, the harder it is to judge their character. And that's why it's so important for pastors, for instance, to be submitted men to be men who serve on a team with other leaders who they are submitted to, like we've tried to organize and structure our ministry here, and who make themselves accountable to their congregation. I am not unapproachable. You hold me accountable for my character, and I'm grateful to God for that. Keep holding me accountable. All right, fruit number three. See, I told you we're blazing through these, blazing through these. Get to go home early. No, you won't. Examine their converts. Examine their converts. This one's real fast. In Romans 1, Paul calls his disciples his fruit or his harvest. So if you can recognize a false prophet by his fruit, then you can recognize him by examining his followers as well, his disciples. What is their conduct like? What is their character like? You can examine their converts. All right, the fourth one, and the one we'll spend the most time on, the rest of our time on, is examine their creed. Examine their creed. What we're talking about here is what a man teaches. So later in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uses this tree and fruit analogy again, and he teaches either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Same principle we're talking about in our passage, right? Then he says, you brood of vipers. Now this is, you know, gentle Jesus here, right? This is mild and meek Jesus who had severe words for false prophets. 
you brood of vipers. His name for them, because they are snakes, just like their father, the devil, the serpent, the first false prophet, is the father of lies. They're just like him, so they're a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, we know this teaching, and we tend to look at it as, as it, talking about how our hearts are revealed by our words. We can know our hearts that way. That's true. But keep in mind, Jesus is speaking here, first and foremost, to false prophets. You can know a false prophet by his words. You can judge him by what he's teaching. It's his creed in Isaiah 8.20. Isaiah 8.20, the Lord says, this is how you test a prophet. You go to the teachings, to the testimony. You go to the word, you go to the Bible. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn or they have no light. So we examine their teachings under the lamp of scripture. Now, Speaking of scripture, turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 16 for a minute. Actually, you can just stay there because I'm going to come back to it in a little while too. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, this is the end of Paul's epistle to the Romans. He's giving them some final instructions. And he says to them in Romans 16 verse 17... I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles. The Greek is scandala, which we get the word scandal from. Paul's talking about significant doctrinal error. I had a whole teaching on this. They had to cut out my sermon because I just didn't have time for it. But he's talking about the use of this word is in reference to errors that are significant. They deny or deviate from central and essential doctrines. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So, in the time we have left with us this morning, or today, I want to give you, I want to examine with you seven examples, seven examples of false gospels that are preached in our day. Seven examples, this is not an exhaustive list, and obviously I'm just going to be able to briefly touch on them, introduce them in many ways, uh, but seven teachings that obstruct, cause obstructions to, that is, they deny or deviate from the one true gospel. So false gospel number one, the Roman gospel. The Roman gospel. I hope it's obvious I'm not talking about the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans, which I just quoted from, but I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Their creed is what I'm talking about, not individual Catholics. Personally, I think there are an untold number of confessing Catholics who really do trust in Jesus alone for salvation. They have better theology than their church does, and we can thank God for that. Nevertheless, make no mistake, Rome has clearly, consistently, and categorically denied that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, years ago, the Council of Trent closely examined the gospel truth or taught by the Protestant reformers. 
And they responded by unapologetically anathematizing, that means cursing, any who believe it. Any who believe you are justified by faith alone, the Catholic Church has taught you are anathematized. It means there's no salvation for you. This has been the clear and consistent teaching of Rome, and it has never been revoked, no matter what they say about Jesus publicly. It is the creed of Rome. So I want you to understand this. Rome has a gospel, but it is not the gospel. To the free gift of salvation, it adds the necessity of human effort. In place of the finished work of Christ on the cross, it demands the ongoing sacrifice of the mass. In place of the permanent imputation of Christ's righteousness, it substitutes the temporary infusion of works righteousness. To the work of Christ, it adds the work of Mary. To the intercession of the Savior, it adds the intercession of the saints. To the authority of the Bible, it adds the authority of tradition. So no matter how, no matter all the good Rome might do by, say, opposing abortion, and no matter all the good things it might believe in, like the Trinity, nonetheless, Rome's creed creates obstacles to the one true gospel and is therefore a false gospel. And her teachers, like Pope Francis, are false prophets. Number two. Yeah, there's a lot of amens in first service. It's always interesting to me how you how different you two services are. You know like with the deck of cards, you like, you, you mix them by like shh, like, I'd like to like mix up the two services sometimes and just see what it's like. Um, you know, would everybody get louder or quieter? Which way would it go? I don't know. See, like you all are still just quiet. You're just looking at me like, why is he talking to us right now? <laughs> I know you're listening, you're just very attentive. Uh, I'm not used to it, I have six kids. What's that? Taking notes. Taking notes, all right, trying to keep up. Good for you, God bless you. Beautiful little attentive people. All right. Can we strike all that off the recording, please? Thank you. The, number two, the progressive gospel. The progressive gospel. Here I'm talking about what's taught in mainline or liberal churches. Uh, wanting to reconcile modern progressive beliefs with ancient beliefs the progressive gospel diverges significantly from the true gospel in myriads of ways, but I'll give you three. First, it has a low view of Christ. They do not believe Jesus to be the divine Son of God, but a good example for us to follow. Second, they focus on moralism, not salvation. It's all about being a good person. Third, it doesn't see people as sinners who need to be saved, but as good people who need opportunities to be better. When you put all that together, you are left with something that's not Christian. If you don't have a divine Jesus and you reduce the faith to moralism and there's no sin, then the cross is ultimately meaningless. It doesn't do anything to save you. It's just a good example of someone being a good person. And that, friends, is a false gospel. Number three, the prosperity gospel. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, 
Welcome. This is not normal. I'm not normally up here decrying all these false teachings out there. In fact, we don't normally do this at all. Uh, we're very careful about some of these things. Uh, but this is where we find ourselves in the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and so is the appropriate place for us to address these things. So number three, then, is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, among other things, the prosperity gospel teaches, I should also say, it's also known as the health and wealth um, gospel or the word faith movement, if you've heard it in other things. Uh, ultimately what they teach, among other things, is that God's plans for his people is to forgive them. Okay, we're good with that one, right? We can take that. And, uh-oh, whenever someone adds an and, to Jesus saving and that's what the gospel accomplishes. Whenever someone adds an and to it, we're in trouble. They say God's plan for his people is to forgive their sins and make them healthy and wealthy. Christ died to make us right with God and prosperous. Health and wealth are included in the atonement. And the more faith you have, the godlier you are. The more you give your money to these teachers as seeds of faith, the more you'll prosper. And this is taught by the likes of Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Joel Olstein, Benny Hinn, who has said he repented of all this, but I have yet to see the fruit of that repentance, but we'll put an asterisk by his name. Lord, grant him full repentance. Frederick Price, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, T.D. Jakes, Brian and Bobby Houston, the founders of Hillsong, and Bill and Benny Johnson, the founders of the Bethel Church and many others I could keep going naming. It's not that they all teach this equally. There are harder and softer proponents of it. But I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches about these kinds of false prophets. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says that there are false teachers of a corrupt mind who imagine godliness to be a means of gain. When in fact, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Then he warns, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. Flee them. Flee the desire to be rich. Flee the love of money. It's people like this that lead others away from Jesus Christ. It leads you away from the gospel. It's a false gospel. Prosperity gospel is not new, folks. It's been around since Paul's day, and we're still dealing with it. Number four, the gay gospel. The gay gospel. I, I, I didn't say this earlier, but I'll, I'll let you know. What I'm doing is I'm trying to work my way in to false gospels that might influence us more and more as evangelicals and as a local church. So number four is the gay, gay gospel, which is increasingly influential among some circles of evangelicals, especially young ones. There are lots of proponents of this false gospel in theologically liberal circles, but there are now increasingly, 
advocates of it among so-called evangelicals. They confess, they say they're evangelicals. One of them is named Matthew Vines. His book is God and the Gay Christian, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Vines promises, this is what he argues, that Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture, so he has in mind evangelicals, can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships. How so? Vines wrote a whole book on it. I'll give it to you once. This is his book in a summary sentence. This, the Bible simply does not address same-sex orientation as we know it today. That's the argument. The Bible simply does not address same-sex orientation as we know it today. And so, apparently, God did not see fit to let us know that in a couple thousand years, everyone was going to have a better understanding about homosexuality, and so uh, then we would know to disregard all these things. I, um, I feel personally upset about this one because I have friends that have been led astray by Matthew Vine's teachings, and so I rebuke that man in Jesus' name. He is a false prophet. But he would argue the sin of Sodom in Genesis 18 is not related to loving consensual same-sex relationships, but to the threat of gang rape. Leviticus 18 and 20 are not prohibiting committed same-sex relationships, but the improper ordering of gender roles in a patriarchal society. Paul in Romans 1 is not referring to monogamous gay relationships, but instead to lustful excess and the breaking of customary gender roles. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, Paul is not condemning same-sex relationships as an expression of one's fixed and exclusive sexual orientation, but instead condemns the economic exploitation of others. To make this argument, Vine severs this pa these passages from one, any natural reading of them, just any plain old reading of them. Second, he rips them out of their context, both historical and textual context. Third, he has to sever them from basic sexual complementarity that God made us in Genesis 1 before there was a fall, male and female. And before the fall, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I shall make a helper for him, a woman. Fourth, it's, it's severed from the full redemptive trajectory of Scripture. Uh, God is not out redeeming homosexuality. Uh, God is out redeeming sexuality. But homosexuality is condemned throughout. So the gay gospel, here it is, is a false gospel. Here's why. Because it tells people that the, what the Bible reveals as sin is actually not sin. It tells them that over there, you don't need Jesus for that. And Jeremiah warns us about false prophets saying, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, 14. In other words, they lie. In other words, false prophets say, there's no problem here when there is a problem here. They refuse to call sin, sin. They refuse to call for repentance. Instead, they point to the broad and easy path and they say, you can be a Christian and take that easy way where you don't need Jesus. Can I just say, we've taught a lot about homosexuality here. We have all the compassion in the world for people who struggle with that. Uh, we want to come alongside and help you with that. But it is a battle against sin. Uh, it is not something you settle in with. 
All right, now we're gonna switch gears a little bit as we move into these next phase of false gospels. We're moving from declared teachings that are out there to kind of more cultural trends, cultural gospels, things that are in the air now that Christians grab hold of and kind of bring into our gospel thinking and pollute it. And so the first, or number five in our list is the woke gospel. The woke gospel. Woke is a word thrown around a lot in our day. You might not know what it means, even if you've heard it. It means to be awake to the true nature of the world when most are asleep. So you're woke. And when you're woke, you can see. You're not blind, you can see. You see the comprehensive inequality of our social order and the corresponding need for racial and social justice. Wokeness is built on the system of thought called critical race theory, or CRT. And CRT teaches that all of life is structured by racial power dynamics. So you're either racially oppressed or racially an oppressor. You're one or the other, all the time. There's no in-between. CRT, in turn, is built on another system of thought called critical theory. So CRT is like a sub-branch of, of CT, of critical theory, and there are lots of different kinds of sub-branches. That, in turn, is built on another system of thought, which you've heard of, Marxism. So there's a lot of history, a lot of philosophical thought here that we're not going to dive into. Uh, a book I would recommend that I have read on it, there's a lot of Christians talking about these things right now, but I don't think all of them are talking about them very carefully. Uh, they're, you know, they're very courageous, uh, but not always very careful or clear. So the best I've read on it so far has been a book by Owen Strachan called Christianity and Wokeness. Uh, Owen Strachan, uh, Christianity and Wokeness. But suffice it to see, say, uh, CRT, or wokeness, as more broadly thought of, has become one of, if not the dominant ideology of our day. Whether it's named or not, you see it all over politics and education curriculums and corporate cultures and sports and social media and commercials and casting for movies and storylines and entertainment and even HGTV and the Food Network gets into it. It's creeping into everywhere, including into the church. On the surface, wokeness might sound like seeking ju justice and showing concern for the oppressed, which Scripture urges us to do, Micah 6, 8. However, wokeness embraces theologies and ideologies inconsistent with Scripture. And so you have these well-intentioned Christians who I think out of compassion and desiring to be accepting and loving are naively embracing this, though, and kind of mixing it into their Christian ministry. And so they're encouraging parishioners to read these woke secular authors without caution or care. Um, more significantly, many evangelical churches are using Christian-based racial reconciliation trainings like 
uh, Be the Bridge. That's the most popular one. Uh, actually, some of us attended a church that was hosting a Be the Bridge course, and we, we sat in and listened to some of it uh, just to learn. But they incorporate CRT theology and just mix it, or ideology and mix it into Christian theology, and it turns into a false gospel, as I'll try to show in a minute. And we're even seeing some mainline evangelical leaders, people you would know if I name them, getting up front of their churches or conferences, repenting of their whiteness and calling out other Christians to do the same. You say, apologizing for the whiteness, Jace, what do you mean by their whiteness? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking me. According to wokeness, the root of all evil is whiteness. What do you mean by whiteness? Well, that means white people and those of minority color who accept and benefit from white thinking are, that's whiteness, it's not just white people, but everybody who chooses to benefit from white thinking, they are all guilty of racism and are thus inherently the oppressors. And the sin of whiteness has taken on systemic and structural shape, so racism is not occasional, it's ordinary. It's everywhere, it's in the air we breathe. All white people and all who accept the benefits from white people perpetuate racism all the time and the only remedy is anti-racist discrimination, they say. You, you have to undertake this never-ending litany of works that try to mitigate your racism. Let me illustrate something I'm talking about. So back in February this year, uh, Coca-Cola, of all companies, required some of its employees to take a training on whiteness. The session encouraged participants to try to be less white. How do you do that? Like go to a tanning booth? Like what are we talking about here? Well, they're gonna tell us. According to the training, to be less white is to be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less defensive, be less ignorant. <laughs> How do they not see this as, this is so racist. <laughs> but regardless, this is a list. Listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity. See, the reality is, according to wokeness, you can never truly overcome your racism. It's just something you can try and manage. But this is how wokeness changes the gospel, especially when it's mixed into Christian teaching. It charges people of a sin that they may not be guilty of. Not all white people, or those who benefit from whiteness, whatever that is, are inherently racist or have committed racism. If they have, that's a sin and they need to repent. But do not make one inherently racist. But it charges them of the sin of being guilty of racism and tells them they can never be free of it. All they can do is continually repent and try to do good works, anti-racist actions to try to make up for it as best they can. In other words, it's a legalistic system that captures people, not one that sets them free by the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Wokeness changes the gospel by teaching that white people are never able fully to repent for their actions because they are inherently racist by nature of being white. But the gospel says all have sinned and everyone can be fully redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ. Thus, with its different view of sin and different view of redemption, wokeness undermines the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be very careful not to pollute the Christian gospel with it. Again, from Owen Strachan's book that I recommended, I think he argues compellingly when he says, wokeness is not a prism by which we discover truths we couldn't see in a Christian worldview. Wokeness is a different system entirely than Christianity. It is, in fact, a different gospel. All right, number six. Number six, the right gospel. The right. Here I'm talking about the politically conservative right. You're going to say, wait, Jason, what about the politically left gospel? Is that your next point? It's not my next point. There is a politically left gospel as well. But remember I said I'm moving increasingly into what influences evangelicals in our church. And undeniably, uh, conservative Christians are more influenced by conservative politics. And so I don't want us to pollute the gospel with conservative political thinking. There's no arguing that there's been a significant moral decline in our country. The Christian worldview and its principles have been swept away in the name of equal rights and political correctness and tolerance and strict separation of church and state and gross immorality. I wish it were immortality. That would be nice in Jesus Christ. But it's immorality, gross immorality, including homosexuality and abortion, pornography, and other evils have been sanctioned not only by society in general but by our government as well. And politically conservative pundits evangelize with a political gospel. And many of them confess to be Christians and they mix them. So it becomes about getting the right people in office and the right laws passed and the right regulations repealed. And these folks are out making political disciples, calling us to pour our energy and our passion, our resources and our hopes into political movements and political leaders and political causes who will fight back against the tyranny. They see America's moral decline as a political problem when it is not primarily a political problem, it is a spiritual problem. And a lot of conservative Christians will agree with me on that, but then here is what they do. They spend their time listening to political podcasts and digesting political news and posting political messages on social media. They are known for their political views and activism more than they are for their Christian views and evangelism. You say Jesus has your heart, but what gets you fired up is politics because you invest all your real hopes and fears in the political sphere, whether you're honest with yourself or not. I believe Jesus would say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, I'm not saying that we need to withdraw with politics. 
I don't believe that. We should vote. We should be engaged. We've preached on that here before. We should do good for all as we have opportunity. But bear this in mind. God has called us to be a kingdom of priests, not political activists. And he has commissioned us not to wage a culture war to make this a Christian nation, but he has commissioned us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So beware of the temptation to try to make this world a heaven on earth. You are putting a facade on something that is broken, fundamentally, and will not be fixed until our Lord returns. Pastor and author John Seal has written, a politicized faith not only blurs our priorities, but weakens our loyalties. Our primary citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. Though few evangelicals would deny this truth in theory, the language of our spiritual citizenship frequently gets wrapped in red, white, and blue. Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, this is good theology, this is helpful, this is not our home. We should not feel comfortable here. We should not feel loved and accepted here. This is not where we settle down and put down roots. That's heaven. This is where we're on mission. This is where we're aliens and soldiers. This is where we are persecuted for our faith. This is where we suffer for others to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is where we hold on to the truth, though the world rail against us. This is where we wage war against spiritual principalities and evils. This is where we take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. That's the war we wage. We're aliens here. We are strangers here. I'm not grumpy, I'm just sick, so you know. Maybe a little grumpy. Where was I in my quote? Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound and act like resident apologists for a Christian America. Unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of Christian America, evangelicalism will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. Well, if I didn't step on your toes with that one, I very well probably will in this last one. False gospel number seven, the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel. I'm gonna spend more time on this one because no one... Hardly anybody feels like any more talks about this one. But it's a thing. Let me define terms here. When I'm talking about the therapeutic gospel or the therapeutic movement, I am not talking about professional, the, the professional disciplines of psychology or psychiatry. I don't want to be misunderstood. Like medicine, psychology can collect observable data and offer some measure of insight. Mental illness is a real thing and sometimes needs to be treated with medication. I'm not saying that, it's not. But I am saying that they do not answer life's ultimate questions and they cannot penetrate to the heart. Only the gospel can, and that is found only in the text of Holy Scripture. Still, when I'm talking about the therapeutic movement, I'm not talking about psychology or psychiatry as a discipline, but more the popular clinical psychology, which is what you would be familiar with, going to see a therapist or a counselor. I'm talking about the cl popular clinical psychology and the kind of pop psychology of Dr. Phil. I'm talking about the proliferation of self-help and self-motivated thinking. That's the therapeutic movement, and it has 
triumphed in modern day America. The therapeutic movement has transformed a discipline into a whole worldview so that psychological categories now dominate how Americans think of themselves and others. Os Guinness has observed, the therapeutic movement has taken not only America, but evangelicalism by storm in the form of Christian and not so Christian books, programs, small groups, and counseling centers. We have some of those in town. David Powelson has written, popular psychologies inevitably integrated biblical language and proof text increasingly claimed the loyalties of not only Christian therapists, but also evangelical parishioners and pastors. Most significantly, psychological categories increasingly became the language of daily life in evangelical circles. I can't tell you how many times people come in to me and talk to me about things that they're struggling with, but they do so in psychological terms, not biblical terms. They see them largely as a malady they need to deal with rather than a fight of faith that is happening or needs to happen. In my estimation, there has been largely uncritical acceptance of the therapeutic by large swaths, large majority of Christians in America. In many places, psychology and Christianity have become committed partners. <coughs> and yet I believe Os Guinness is right when he states, what is taking place is an open challenge to historic Christian orthodoxy. The therapeutic, the therapeutic now offers eight alternatives, all deceptive and all substitutes for God. These eight alternatives are temptations that the evangelical church must confront. Number one, an alternative authority. An alternative authority. Instead of theology, we now look to therapy. Instead of opening your Bible to find out what is going on in your soul and how to deal with it, you go to your therapist and you give them equal, if not more, weight. Number two, an alternative worldview. The psychological person of today views the world and experiences life more in psychological categories than they do biblical ones. So it's about repression or denial or obsession or addiction or codependency. There are far more real categories for us in daily life than original sin or the image of God or the fight of faith. They give us an alternative language of skepticism. Number three, therapy's drive to analyze down to the nth degree and to find out and then to excuse ends up undermining the faith. Number four, they give us an alternative priesthood. Instead of pastors, now you have counselors. Instead of the priesthood of believers, where you bring your problems into the light with a community who loves you. Instead, you now go to a counselor where you deal with your problems in private. I mean, have you had that before in, in fellowship with someone where they tell you, you know, like, I've got something going on in my life, I'm struggling with that, but I'm talking to my therapist about it, or I'm going to counseling for that. Which is a way of letting you know, I have a struggle, but they're helping me. Now we need therapeutic experts to help us with our inner struggles. Number five, an alternative pathology. 
So our problem isn't sin and suffering anymore. Now therapy tells us it's disease or addiction or that we are victims of our circumstances. Therapy tells us that there aren't bad people, just people who think badly about themselves. Our problem is low self-esteem. You know what I think our problem is? High self-esteem that's disappointed. (laughs) I wonder why people don't come to me for counseling and go to counselor instead. (laughs) Or our problem is chemical imbalances. Anxiety is never a sin. Depression is never a sin. I'm not saying that they always are sins. There's real suffering in the world. But they're never categorized as sins. They're just medical issues to deal with, probably to medicate with. Again, I'm not saying there's not places for medications. I do think there are places and times for medications. I think they can be helpful. Sometimes we got to get a grip on some things. I like to help people decide that. That's a big decision to take a life-altering drug. I like to come alongside people and say, well, there are implications for your life, and I've walked with other people alongside that, and I'd love to be able to advise you in any way I can or research that with you or something, because this makes a difference, and because it doesn't solve the problem. It helps reduce symptoms so that you can deal with the actual problem, which is dealing with your sin or dealing with suffering in your life which are biblical categories. Again, I'm not against medication. I am against the rate in which Americans medicate, though, because they medicate for everything. And you can tell your family a physician, I'm really struggling with anxiety, haven't been able to sleep, and they say, well, take this to the pharmacy. It's an aspirin. In that situation, it's just an aspirin. It's not fixing anything. I'm not saying if you're on medication to get off of it immediately or anything like that, that would be very dangerous. You should talk to your doctor. I would love to help you and talk you through these things. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm trying to provide discernment where we are not always discerning. So I'm touching a big broad swaths. But you see, without the biblical diagnosis of sin or suffering, the therapeutic inherently offers a gospel that is an alternative. Solutions that are alternatives when they're not really very good solutions. They appear insightful, but they're ultimately shallow. They appeal dazzling, but they ultimately disappoint. Number six, an alternative self. Not made in the image of God, I am now an unrealized, I'm a person of unrealized potential. That sounds nice. I am not someone who is a moral, responsible human being. I am someone who is a victim in life. I saw Calvin and Hobbes comic once. You know Calvin and Hobbes, the boy and the tiger, right? There's some good theology in Calvin and Hobbes. Probably some bad, but there's some good I've seen too. In this particular comic, in the first frame, Calvin, the boy, says, nothing I do is my fault. Hobbes just kind of looks at him perplexed. He's scratching his head. Second frame, Calvin continues, my family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. (laughs) And consequently, I'm not self-actualized. Third frame, Calvin says, my behavior is addictive, functioning in a diseased process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I accept any responsibility for my actions. Final frame, Calvin says with a smile, 
I love the culture of victimhood. <laughs> Hobbes says, that's the tiger, one of us needs to stick our head in a bucket of ice water. <laughs> Offers us an alternative self. Number seven, an alternative faith. Biblical faith relies on God. Therapeutic faith relies on you. You save you. You believe in you. Number eight, all this culminates in an alternative salvation. No longer are we saved by God through Christ. Now we are saved by me through my therapist or through my medication. Ultimately, I become my own savior. Os Guinness goes on to say the overall story of pastoral care in the United States can be summed up as the shift from salvation to self-realization. Made up of smaller shifts from self-denial to self-love, from self-mastery to self-expression. The victory of the therapeutic over theology is nothing less than the secularization and replacement of salvation. And I want you to be discerning. Now if that raises questions for you, if you are in therapy or counseling right now, if you're on medications and you want to talk through these things, if you've been wanting to study this as a profession or thinking about going into it, or you do practice it, um, I've talked about a lot of this stuff before, but I'm happy to engage you and work through this. I had a line of people at the first service that I engaged and talked through things, so uh, I know I just, I just said a lot, and so if you want more specific engagement and greater detail, I'd be happy to walk you through any of that, bounce things off you. Let me conclude by saying this. I want you to look again at Romans chapter 16. Verse 17, moment of interaction. Paul calls us to respond to, two prophet, or to respond to prophets in two ways. What are they? What do you see? Two ways. The very beginning of the, of the verse, what's he say? Huh? One person saw it. Anybody else see it? Romans 16, verse 17. We were looking at it earlier. I hear a couple people. Some of you are just waiting for everybody else to do the homework for you. Romans 16, 17, the first thing he tells us to do is? All right, you're getting it. We're going to get you there. Number two, the second thing he calls us to do with false prophets are? Avoid. Avoid them. Watch out. Beware. Jesus says, beware. Examine their fruit. And if you find one, avoid them. Avoid them. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but are ravenous wolves. Friends, this is the loving care of Jesus for us. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his flock. And he's just exhorted us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't go the broad and easy way. Take the straight and narrow. And now he's helping us stay on the straight and narrow because it leads to life. He doesn't want us to be caught unaware and he doesn't want us to be captured unwittingly by false prophets. So stay sharp, he says. Watch out. Evaluate. And when you find them, avoid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path through dark days and a dark world, Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ, you're the light of the world. You've come into it. We celebrate that at Christmas, and I'm so thankful, Lord, and I'm thankful that you left a light for us here to navigate this world. 
Lord, thank you for your word. You care for us. You love us. I'm so grateful. I pray that you would help this church, Lord. I pray you'd help us to uh, grow in our powers of discernment. Lord, I pray that this church would be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That we would build on the firm foundation, the solid rock of Jesus' teachings and the word of God. And that we would so do this not only to honor you and worship you, but also so that we can be a place of safe haven in the midst of a world that is buffeted to and fro by false doctrines. God, I want us to be a place where people can get washed up on our shores, buffeted onto our shores, banged up against them, but then find, oh my goodness, here is solid ground. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to suffer for the truth. The Lord, we'd be willing to be persecuted for it. We would happily do that to serve other people. The saints in the Hebrews um, says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. May it be a joy to us to suffer for what is right, for the sake of others, and for the glory of your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.